HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. We are coming to you from Midtown Manhattan. Our guest is Alice Pagliard, co-director of Champagne Bruno Pagliard. Alice will help us navigate through all things champagne. We will also taste the Pagliard champagne for our weekly wine sip later in the show. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Okay, there are many sparkling wines made around the world, but what makes champagne champagne? What grapes are used for champagne? What is disgorgement? What is the difference between a vintage and a non-vintage champagne, also known as a multi-vintage, which we'll find out about? What is dosage? We'll get into all of that and more with our expert guest, Alice Payard, because this is the Champagne Show. Welcome to the Great Nation, Alice. Thanks, Sam. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Alice is co-director of Champagne Bruno Payard, located in the Champagne region of France. Little background. Her ancestors have been growers in Champagne since 1704. In 1981, Alice's father, Bruno Payard, at the young age of 27, broke the traditional mold and famously went on to found his own Champagne house. Now, he didn't just grow the grapes, which his predecessors did, he also made the wine. Alice is the only of her four siblings to join her dad in 2007. So she's been at this for a while. Alice, tell us a little about you, and tell us about your journey since you joined your dad, going back to 2007. Well, um, the journey probably started before I was even conscious about it. (laughs) But... Since when I was 15, I would have 
swore that I would never ever join him, of course, <laughs> but, but things changed because the passion about wine has been there for a long time. And, uh, and I'm glad I joined him actually soon, um, sooner than later, because, because we have very many different um, works within a champagne house. We, we must learn how to beautifully grow grapes. We must learn how to vinify. We must learn then how to take care of the aging and, and hold the financial of, of all these inventories. So, that, so a lot of jobs. That's an important point for Payard Champagnes because before the family was just <clears throat> growing grapes. Yes. And I assume they were selling them to other producers. You, as you stated, are growing and vinifying the grapes and all of that. Yes, well, and I, actually when my father started, he was not even growing because um, as often in French law, uh, the, the family vineyards went to the elder brother uh-huh. of my grandfather. My grandfather was not the elder brother, and as such, he didn't inherit vineyards. So the starting point for my father was from zero. He, he purchased exactly. He had to purchase, and then he acquired land. Exactly, right. and so and so he started by vinifying, and in time two he could become a grower as well, um, which makes the profile of our house quite unusual because we own, you know, a house owns little vineyard generally and buys a lot of fruit, and we are uh, the, the opposite of that by owning. Do you you make. About fifty percent of the wine is made from your own vineyard, and even 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 a is bit higher. Is that typical 65. of most champagne houses, or it varies? Obviously, no, it's it's really not. Uh, the average for a house is around ten percent. Oh, so yes. it's substantially yes. higher. Yes. Just go back for a minute, because you said when you were fifteen, there's no way you're getting into the business. I just want to know between fifteen and when you decided, <laughs> what was the defining moment that you decided? I guess I'm going to do this or give it a try. Well, oh, what I, happened? I guess a certain internal peace with yourself okay. first to start with and, 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 a, and a way of thinking maybe I don't care so much about what people think, I care about what I want. And that's probably when the, it changed. Um, and, and, and of course... Um, Wait, so it just didn't seem right or cool to go into the business because that's what you thought other people thought? I couldn't then the fact that people would tell me when I was 15, oh, you're going to work with your oh, father, yeah. when my parents would never, ever tell me that themselves. And, right. I, I, and I didn't like that idea. Um, so you've been with your dad, it's been, what, about eight, nine years? Yeah, already, yeah. So you obviously have a good relationship with him when you initially decided to yes. work with him. Yes, you yes. guys had a good relationship. We do. And tell me now, you, do you work closely? Do you take very separate closely. tasks? You're both, you know, uh, very heavily so, into uh, it. Separate tasks is difficult because we're a small house. So um, at first, I was really learning, uh, and I, and I'm still, you're still learning every day, of course. You but never I was, stop learning. Exactly, but I was very much in his first step, job by job, mission by mission. Um, then there is a certain stage when you feel like um, your own view is a bit uh, different, so you start uh, w- working more on your own, which is uh, the case, And but now we're, we're together on most subjects because it's a small house, so right. it's, you can't really 
split the work. But uh, when something is obvious that either needs to be innovated or changed, yes. I mean, you'll be passionate about convincing your dad or um, him, you, that we need to do this, even though it bucks tradition. Yes, absolutely. But I'm, I'm very lucky. He's an easy person to work with because he's everything but the generation you would imagine very reserved on changing things. He's always been a very proactive character, so it's never complex to, to convince him of any, of any changes. So in your tenure there, I think you alluded to it, you started at every level. Yes. I mean, you were out in the far, the mm -hmm. fields. You made wine. Uh, the cellars, which we'll talk about a little, which are not cellars at Payard. Um, it's above ground, right? Um, all right, so let's talk about champagne. I mean, your life is surrounded by champagne, so there's nobody better to tell our listeners about champagne. So the first obvious question is, not all sparkling wine is champagne, correct? Well, not even... You know what, if you look at all sparkling wines produced in the, in, around the world, champagne is not even 10% of it. Okay, so what makes champagne champagne? It's geography. Um, the first thing you learn about wine, when you start learning about wine, you learn the definition of terroir. And terroir is the combination of a land, a climate, and people. And Champagne is, is, is before anything, a region uh, limited, which is northeast of Paris and the northern side of France. And actually, when you look at, Cham at, at European vineyards, it's the most northern one. Uh, and it's, it's very interesting to understand that because it completely... Um, uh, influences all the centuries of practices after that. Right. Geography has often explained history. Right. Did they recently, I don't know how long ago, expand Champagne? Did they... uh, I understand where your question comes from. Expansion, no, actually revision of, okay. the, of the map, absolutely. But Champagne has been reduced in the past if you look at, you might have heard of Phylloxera, which came which, from you, friends, our American friends. Phylloxera was Phylloxera a... Phylloxera is yeah. a, um, a vine disease that can devastate <laughs> wines, grapes, vineyards, and all of that. That's what uh, Alice is alluding to. Yeah, because it came from America, and it arrived in Bordeaux in the end of the 19th century. Yes, 19th century. Malbec didn't do well with phylloxera uh -huh. and the cold and all that, so they didn't grow as much. Exactly, and France. so all European vineyards, without exception, was completely destroyed by that. And it's interesting to observe, the, the, today's surface of Champagne appellation is 33,000 hectares. I'm sorry, I don't know in acres what it means. But before phylloxera, it used to be 80,000. Oh, so see. it wasn't replanted? No. Why people just gave up or... A part of that, yes, absolutely, because a lot of families were absolutely ruined with right. Philoxa. And then people forget that First World War happened, and it happened there. The Marne battle, the Verdun, the Champagne, Champagne was in the middle of it. And there was a moment of potential reconstruction of the Champagne vineyards ar arrived First World War, arrived the Russian Revolution, arrived the crisis here in America. So all the export markets of Champagne were also completely 
closed. Right. And it was a very, very tough time. So right. only a few people replanted bravely, if I can say that's correct English, to kind of defend the appellation, but a lot of it never was replanted. So champagne is champagne because it is grown within a designated region. Absolutely. And as you said, the region was larger and due to disease, phylloxera, mm -hmm. it's shrunken down. But it's still a robust area. Within Champagne, do the terroirs, do the soils vary from one area to another? Or it's generally... Because you can go to Napa and on one winemaker's vineyard, <laughs> he has lava, he has limestone, he's on a lake. and it, 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 Is the terroir different? Yeah. All over. It's very interesting because um, Champagne is not very big, but it's very spread for the simple reason that uh, because we're this very northern vineyard, the vine can only carry a nice and mature fruit on slopes. But someone who visited Champagne already realizes there are very few slopes. There are a lot of fields for kilometers, for miles of, uh, of cereals and beetroots and potatoes. So, uh, and uncertainly, a hill and slopes and vines. So that means kind of small islands of vineyards. Right. Uh, and so different realities of altitude, exposure, What's, and soil. What the slope mm -hmm. helps with exposure, uh -huh. it just positions the vines and the grapes better. It was a better sun But exposure. champagne is not very slopey or hilly, you're saying. No, exactly. Okay. So, but there is the, the more beautiful and noble soil that we're looking for in Champagne is the chalk, the famous Belemnit chalk, which is nothing but the concretion of shells a million of years ago when it used to be a sea. But of course, you also have clay, you also have sand, you also have uh, argile, um, you have various types of soil. So different vines are growing in, some vines are growing in chalky soil, some are exactly. growing in uh, limestone. But you blend, so you tend to get a mixture of the terroir. Is that fair? You do blend, uh, and you, but, you, but, but what you will blend is up to your vision. You can right. choose not right. to Right, that's what makes Payard Payard, yep. your blending and, and all of that. All right, so let's talk about, so Champagne is a designated region. Anything outside of Champagne is not Champagne. It's a sparkling wine. So let's talk about how Champagne is made. Um, I guess with regular wine, the grape is crushed, fermented, and aged. I think champagne requires a, not different, but more steps. Yes. So tell me as simplistically as you can. The beginning is exactly the same. Growing grapes. Are we going Harvesting, back that far? Yeah. Harvesting, growing. Crushing separately and vinifying apart, uh, not only grape by grape, but and I'm, I'm speaking obviously of serious producers. Huh? Right. Um, uh, but but village by village, and if possible, parcel by parcel, which is even better. And after a couple of months, a few months, uh, it's for us, we, we always do that much later because time matters. It's the moment of assemblage, the moment of tasting each of them and choosing when what When you say should. later, you pick later? No, we, we blend much later. You blend later. By you low, hold on to the exactly. wine. By law, you can blend and bottle your wine as early as January after harvest. But if you want to make a good one, you need more time. It's impossible. And time is money, so you're exactly. investing time, which costs money to produce yes, exactly. what you feel is you know, the wine that you want, which but, is a quality wine. But to do a good assemblage, you need 
to taste not what you like right now, but what you anticipate the wine will become with a second fermentation, more years of aging. So if you don't give it enough time in the first place, you've no idea. It's like asking a five-year-old kid, what, kid, what do you want to do when you grow old? You know, you no need to idea. give it time. Right. Exactly. So, um, so this, for a serious producer, blending should happen in the spring. And then once you've decided your assemblage by, okay, let's put this village, this village, etc., you physically do it, and then the wine is put inside the bottle, whereas a second fermentation will happen the exact same way than the first fermentation. It's always sugar transforming into alcohol and, and producing CO2, but the difference is that this time it's in the sealed bottle by opposition to an open um, barrel or tank. So the CO2 that's produced cannot escape from the bottle, and it is dissolving into the wine. And because this CO2... Does that have a name? Uh, second fermentation. It's second. That's what it is. Second, exactly. Which is in bottle, closed, exactly. all the gases and everything. And because the molecule of CO2 is bigger than the one of oxygen, it creates a pressure inside of the bottle. And that's the, the birth of the, of the effervescence of champagne. And this second fermentation, it's extremely important that it happens in a cool cellar. This is why traditionally the older houses created two or three centuries ago had underground cellars because it was the only way Naturally to go. cool. Exactly. Right. Cool and stable. Um, and so why is that? Because the, the cooler the temperature, the slower will be the second fermentation and the more gentle and delicate the aromas will be so in the bubble. So you want slow, which is gentle, which benefits the final product. Absolutely. And very, very creamy and tiny bubbles in the end. And is tiny bubbles what you aim for? Yes, always. That's a finer champagne, tiny bubbles. So very, very much so. Go back for a second, because to make champagne, mm-hmm. you need grapes. Mm-hmm. What kind of grapes are we talking about? There's three main grapes are Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier. So Chardonnay is a white grape, Pinot Noir is a red grape, and the third was... Is Meunier is also... Also a red. You're absolutely right. Yeah, right. we do make a white wine with two black grapes and one white grape. That's which, a Blanc de Blanc is all yeah, white. Exactly. This is why, actually, harvest is mandatory by hand in Champagne, because to make sure the wine remains... The juice remains as clear as possible and doesn't get tainted by the color which lies in the skin of the grapes. So if you do a rosé, mm-hmm. then you leave it on the skin. At more. some stage, absolutely. Yeah. When you do a rosé, you're using Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier. You or? can. It depends. Okay. You can. You can also do use Chardonnay. Need, you can. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The, there's color in the skin to give it a little rosé quality. Uh, from from you, you necessarily need some black grape, but I mean you can also have some Chardonnay in the blend if you want to. So the. The majority, not the majority, the champagnes you make are blends? Absolutely. Do you do a Blanc de Blanc? We do. And then you blend, do you blend all three? Ah, all right. The notion of, that's a good point you're raising, blend or assemblage. Assemblage. relates to several things in champagne. Before anything, assemblage of terroirs. Before the assemblage of grapes, you start by assembling right. parcels, which is which is what makes me say our blanc de blanc is an assemblage, because yes, you're right, it, it, it is only one grape actually, but but it is eight different terroirs, and also assemblage of different vintages together, right, which we'll get to. Uh-huh. Um, so, do you follow 
do the wines, the champagnes, is there a similar structure historically as far as the assemblage, you know, from different terroirs, or is it drastically different every time? Hmm. I mean, you have to sort of stick to a formula, right? And then you That's, tweak um, it, or does it really vary vintage to vintage? I know. Uh, it's exactly like a composition. If you take a Beethoven Symphony, for instance, it was conceived and written once, but then it is reinterpreted every time with a different orchestra, different instruments in different um, cities or places to play the music. It's exactly the same thing. The secret uh, of each assemblage has been created once. But then you need to reinterpret it every vintage, every year, with what Mother Nature gives you, with the characteristic of each village. And, and the, the, the art of it is about replacing the right village by the other right village in terms of if you've had hail, if you had spring frost, if right. you just didn't agree with the character developed by that terroir. That's that very personal. And that's, that's where it, right. the creativity comes in. Right, um, which makes every wine different every vintage and all that. What, you have a thing called a pound a cup during crushing. Do you know what that is? No. <laughs> you use the best juice. Ah, yes. To explain that. Well, when you crush <clears throat> the grapes, there's a certain amount of juice and you use... That's, that's, that's for us, Bruno Payard. Uh, right, not everyone does that. No, Which exactly. is another point towards quality. But, 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 of course... I mean, that's quite intuitive. I think everybody gets that the first part of the pressing is the purest one because you really extract what's in the heart of the, of the grape, uh, and while the second part of the pressing, you start crushing a bit the seeds and the skin and the, the raffle, as we say in French. So obviously in the second part of the pressing, you extract a bit of bitterness, which is interesting because when you just taste them at the very moment, one might prefers the second pressing because right. it's softer. But remember, we are aiming for something not that we like now, but what will become right. a beautiful wine later on. So do do people use a, a good amount of the second pressing or most better champagne stay away from it? I know you do. Usually that's a question to ask to each Right, that's <laughs> not a fair question. But, uh, but it, it will appear. But what I can say is we, we commit to using only the first right. one and we write it on each bottle. All right, so let's talk about some of these uh, nerdy terms. Let's talk about what disgorgement is. All right, so I will just go back a couple of minutes when we were talking of the process, right. bottling and second fermentation in a cool cellar. This second the fermentation... The wine is in the bottle, exactly. closed, sealed, the gases exactly. are sealed. That's the second fermentation. Exactly, and in a cool cellar. And that's... Then... You kind of hold on everything and you stop and you wait. Because the How long are we talking about leaving the wine on, in, in the, the second, second fermentation in the bottle? Alors, that's when, that's obviously there is a minimum set by law, which would say 15 months for a non-vintage champagne and three years for a single vintage champagne. And then obviously the law only sets a minimum. And again, if you want to make a serious wine, you need more time. Uh, for so us, time only benefits the quality. Yes, if, if the first material in, in, right. in the bottle can, right. can stand it, of course. Um, so uh, the, 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 for us, a younger wine would be three years on lease. 
And why is that important? Tell people what lees are. Voilà, because the first, the second fermentation won't last for three years. Even in a very cool cellar, it will be completed in two to three months. But what happens next? These yeasts, these yeasts that have done the second fermentation, they are, they are, they are alive. So they've consumed all the sugar, they've transformed it into alcohol. They've consumed all the oxygen, they've released CO2. And once they've done that, they die because they have no more, no, nothing right. else to, to nourish them. And one could think they're useless. But they're not. They become lees. They become these famous sediments that lay on the bottle horizontally. And they are like a, a, a very thin um, uh, couverture, if I could say. Uh, and and, and they then starts this famous and very mysterious process of the autolysis. Autolysis is this self-destruction of the lees into tinier and tinier and invisible pieces that will mysteriously enrich the wine, nourish it, give it so structure the, and body. The visible leaves disappear? They don't completely disappear. Completely. But, but, but some 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 part of it do and, and, and nourish the wine. And that's when by leaving the wines on leaves in the cellar for a long time you give them more structure. Uh, and the thing is Obviously, when we consider the aging is over, we're not going to give you a champagne bottle with sediment inside. Right. So that's when disgorgement comes in, because we need to get rid of the sediment in the end of the process. So disgorgement is the process of getting rid of the sediment yeah, so that you have... Is it filtering or...? No, it's um, uh, the bottle is laying down in the cellar for years. Then you have a, a short riddling process of a, a couple of weeks. Explain what riddling is. And riddling is simply the fact of bringing the bottle from horizontal to vertical position, head down, simply to very... In racks. Yes. And you have cellars with bottles Absolutely. pointed down. And so that very, very gently, the sediments will move towards the exit door, which is the neck of the bottle. And when they're absolutely ready, you have to do it quietly. So that makes disgorgement easier by moving uh -huh. the sediment Exactly. Up. They are all concentrated nearby. The, the now, the riddling used to be, not used to, it was done by hand. Mm -hmm. I understand you have mechanical riddlers? Yes. Or some? Uh, well, riddling has been done by hands for a very, very long time. Uh, the thing is, you don't find anybody who wants to do that anymore. No. It's uh, So it's mechanical? It's a, very, it's a very not fun job at all. So the wines um, are put in a large yeah. pallet so and a machine? There's a combination of two things. Yeah, first... Yeah, but nobody wants to do it. Uh, but 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 also uh, the riddling rights have been delivering delivering beautiful uh, quality results because they do very. The riddling is not what makes a good wine, but if it's not it's well just made, just the process to yeah. get. But if it's if it's not well made, it can ruin a good wine. Right. So it's 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 very important. And 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 the, the key to a good riddling is the size of the movement that need to be very small. And the number of the movements. actual movement of the Ex bottle. Exactly. So that's a very precise. The smaller they are, and the more. You just can't have somebody come in and start spinning bottles. No, around. exactly. And the, and oh the more boy, numerous. I fired. The more, more numerous they will be, the brightest will the wine be in the end. So that's 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 why uh, the, that's what explains the success of Giro Palettes in Champagne because they, 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 they do that better than by hand. All right. So let's keep the process going. So now the wine is in the bottle, second fermentation, pointed down, riddled to move the uh, sediment up. It's ready for what now? The famous disgorgement. The fact of 
opening the bottle a few seconds, letting some, obviously some wines run through and together bring sediments and then putting, putting it up again and making sure no more wine is coming out. And because you've lost a bit of wine in the process, you need to top it up. Right. So you top it up with your reserve wines and the dosage that you've chosen to do. Dosage is what? And dosage is the level of sugar. Some wines are, uh, you've heard of extra brut, brut champagne, demi-sec, sec. Um, Those are all levels of dryness. Exactly. But is dosage adding sugar? It's adding reserve wines with a bit of sugar inside, okay. absolutely. Okay. Um, so how much you add determines how dry. Exactly. Okay. Um, For us, it's all, they're all extra bruts, which means uh, very, very little dosage. And one of the things you said a few times is longer maturation. Yeah. You, Payard, is very patient. Quality is important, so you're willing to let wine sit there a lot longer. The thing is, you can choose between time and sugar. Basically, I'm right. a bit, I'm a bit, I mean, I'm a bit uh, hard saying that, but um, if you, if you want to make a, to seek for purity and low dosage in your wines, which is what we're doing, you need time because, right. because the first material has a very vibrant nervosity and acidity. And I use this word knowing that it's a scary word. Acidity, people are scared about that sensation that can well, be aggressive. I think once they understand what it is, exactly. they realize it helps with food. Exactly. It, it gives the wine that feel. The, the term sounds intimidating, but it's important mm-hmm. to what a good champagne or wine exactly. is. Exactly. And, 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 and it, is, it depends all on how it's integrated. Right. You can choose to hide acidity with sugar. We'd rather not do that. We'd rather domesticate, civilize acidity with time, hence the importance of the aging. So Payard was, is an innovator in some areas. You were the first to put disgorgement dates on the bottles. Yes. People weren't really doing that. Absolutely. Right. Uh, the thing, the reason, well, it was uh, my, my father Bruno uh, had this observation. We've all done that. You're a party of six, you go to the restaurant, you order a bottle of a champagne you like very much, it's delicious. You say, well, let's have a second bottle half hour later. And it's a second bottle from the exact same house, and you have the feeling to drink a different champagne. And very legitimately, you could think, well, that's, that's not serious. Why would I have two different impressions so by from... by matching the, the disgorgement gates, exactly. it will give you the Exactly, because maybe, maybe simply because one bottle was a disgorgement from previous delivery a year ago so and not the other one. So that was for the consumer, exactly. just to let, give them more information. Absolutely. All right, we were talking about sellers, riddling and all that. You built a state-of-the-art above ground cellar which is where you store your wines it is because when uh, did you do that in 1990 okay yeah because well at the, uh, we never tried to make a fake old cellar it was more about using the best of techniques to right. have to offer the best possible aging environment right. and the thing is when you're uh, if, if you choose to go underground it means you have different levels of cellars, one underneath the other. And the problem doing that is that each level will have a different temperature. Uh, the best ideal temperature this is, is uniformly only... uniformly controlled. Exactly. What you you, otherwise, you need to go 35 right. meters underground to find the 10, uh, 10 and a half Celsius degrees right. we are looking for. And we talked about 
the mechanical pallets, mm -hmm. which you adopted fairly early. Yeah, because it was at the same time that the building of, this, of the cellar. Right. So it made sense yeah. to automate there. And Bruno Payard Champagne is still an independent, family-owned. Entirely, 100%. Which is not the case with a lot of champagne houses mm -hmm. that roll off people's mm -hmm. tongues, which is a nice thing. And you take a holistic approach to the business, right? Would you say that's a fair description? I'll say you're well informed. Okay. <laughs> All right. So that's how we make champagne. That's how Bruno Payard makes champagne. They do a, a bunch of things different, time, um, some of their approaches. Did we miss anything? Oh, no, but I could keep speaking for hours, right. but I guess. We'll move on to something else. <laughs> I do a thing every week. It's called the wine list. Mm -hmm. And I didn't prompt you on this because I didn't want you to prepare. I'm going to ask you about five questions about wine. Now, it's tricky with you because you can answer with champagne and wine. So I'll prompt you as to what. What wines are you drinking right now? So... Not champagne. Not champagne, all right. Um, Just now, not, you no. know, yeah, yeah, has there. it been seasonal? Is there something you're loving? Oh, what I, I will. I would love, uh, I love, uh, as far as whites are concerned, if not champagne, I love to go to the Moselle. Uh, and, and, and some wonderful Riesling. I think Riesling is very uh, underrated for I agree. And their, the value is very good. Uh, but if I go to Reds, I would love the... Um, some uh, from the Rhone, I, I tend to go more either Northern Rhone, Saint Joseph, or also you Southern like Rhone. Syrahs, bold Syrahs. Yeah, but then the Northern Rhone, you have a lot of elegance too. You have you have you know maturity with refinement if you find the right, right producers. And and uh, <laughs> looking the at the Southern Rhone, you have some very interesting things like uh, like in uh, like in um, Ventoux, for instance, which is more Grenache. But here you have right. Claude de Trias, for instance, which I like very much. Coming into this. In the, coming the into the varietals, winter, Grenache, Mourage, yeah, coming into delicious. the winter, these are wines that are very, very interesting. All right, your favorite wine and food pairing. Uh -huh. So we'll all say champagne and oysters, but now what's your favorite wine and food pairing? Oh, that, that, but uh, am, I, am I allowed to reply with champagne because it really yes, is? Yes, on this one you yeah. can. So well. what's your favorite champagne food pairing? <laughs> Alors, I'll be, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll be joking on that because this summer I had an amazing pairing I had never realized. Um, it was uh, just after a bath in the sea, a cup of rosé, première cuvée, and I still had some salt on my lips. And that was a wonderful so pairing, that, okay. a sea bath with a glass of okay. rosé champagne. That, that could be <laughs> on the top five of most interesting <laughs> answers. How about your favorite wine restaurant or wine bar? And I'm going to give you two ways to answer. You're in New York now, and New York's a pretty damn good restaurant town, and you've also been in France, which is a great restaurant country in Europe. Do you have a favorite restaurant that you go into that yeah. has great wine service and the food and pairing everything? Of course there are, but for me it's difficult to reply for New York because I haven't come in okay, two years. Okay, so then tell me um, at home or yeah. Europe. Oh yeah, well, uh, at home in Paris, I uh, I mean, I live in France, but in Paris, I see a lot of energy in new places opening, and uh, uh, absolutely, uh, place like um, like um, uh, Le Bon Saint Pourçain, for instance, which is a bistro, but which was rated the very best bistro last year by in, the food in, in Paris. In Paris, yes. It's What's in, it called? Le Bon Saint Pourçain. Okay. Uh, it's really a place. I mean, you want to eat typical. 
French cuisine with in a, in good a not wine service? exactly okay. with great wine service in an absolutely not pretentious area in the okay. heart of Paris behind Saint Sulpice. It's so beautiful. Nice. Uh, it's it's really a nice address to try. Not fancy, no, fancy, no, no, just no, no. casual. Yeah, no, no, okay. no, absolutely. Um, uh, I had you, you had another question, which was favorite wine restaurant or wine bar. Yeah. You answered it. We're going to move oh. to the next one. Favorite all-time wine. So you get two answers. Favorite all-time champagne, and then is there a wine? Is it a birth year wine? Did you have a? Is there a wine that just still resonates with you? Mm, uh, yes. Uh, um, I don't. Know, if I start with a non-champagne, it would probably be in 1982 uh, Brand Contenac. Really. Which. Uh, Great producer, not one of the you no. know. Grand Cru. I'm, I'm, I uh, like to hear that. I, I don't know if you can still find 82 some. 82 was I've... a... Ter- right. You can. You just have to pay for it. Yeah. But a great vintage year. What about your all-time favorite champagne? I mean, the you house has been around for... You know what? Well, the thing I think that the gave me most... Um, well, all right. This striking one probably would have been the 96 Blanc de Blanc which is a wine very deep, very vertical, very energetic, so that creates ex- kind of extreme emotions. But um, in, in, in competition to that, uh, the, the, the most memorable one I have tasted would be a very apparently simple Premier Cuvée, which was disgorged 20 years ago. And that uh, is, is, is extremely, it creates a lot of emotion to understand how a, a, a non-pretentious wine, right. how far it can go. Right. Um, we're going to taste the wine. We do a thing called the weekly wine sip. And you were kind enough to bring a Paillard champagne. And we're going to break in a minute. But I forgot to get to one area, which is important to Bruno Paillard. And people know wine as vintage wines, you know, here's a 1982, here's a 2002, but a lot of wine people purchase is non-vintage. You call it something else. You call it multi-vintage, which is brilliant because explain what a multi-vintage is. You know, that the house has all these vintages and they mix. The the, the thing with... uh Non-vintage is we, we don't like that term so much for two reasons. The first one is that it's negative, and the second one is that it doesn't mean what the wine is. It just means what it's not. Um, it comes from the opposition to a vintage. A single vintage champagne is a vin- is a wine made exclusively from one harvest, while a multi-vintage is a wine made from several different vintages together and in, in, in as far as we're concerned of which you have reserves of exactly. these vintages this is what for blending the reserve ones. so your current non-vintage can have wines blended from as far back as when uh, in our case as far back as 85 okay I think that's a pretty nice thing when you're picking up a... That's unique, actually, in Champagne, absolutely. All right, so that covers multi-vintage. All right, we're going to do our weekly wine sip. You'll stay and you'll join in drinking, and I want you to kind of walk us through the wine. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. 
following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. All right, we're back. We're back with our weekly wine sip. Every week we taste a different wine on air. For this week's weekly wine sip, Alice Payard from Champagne Bruno Payard will join us for the wine sip. And she has brought us a bottle of champagne. We'll be tasting the mixed vintage Bruno Payard Extra Brut Champagne. So let's pop it open, pour it, and tell me a little about this wine. Here we are, Sam. Watch out. Here we are. (laughs) The best part was when... Your beautiful hair kind of poofed. <laughs> that was nice. That's a yes. visual you will get on here. That's a, there's a lot of life in the bottle. Yes. Um, well, the, the, this wine is called Première Cuvée, which stands for first pressing. Okay. We mentioned earlier the notion of the importance of the first part of the pressing. Alors, first thing is, um, of course, if you, if you can choose a glass, um, the ideal shape is what we call the tulip shape, which is a V in the bottom part, which allows the bubbles to grow, and a a larger belly in the center, so that there is enough aeration for the wine. So flutes are passé. Actually, the the tulip is a type of flute that would be a mixture between the straight flute and a burgundy glass, ideally. Right. So here... So the color is... Well, first you can look, if if you have the proper glass, you will see a nice effervescence that's that's very, yes. very tiny. We learn to look at the color of a wine on something white. And here you see, we call it a straw gold color, which right. means it's a, a, fra- a fairly yellow gold that shows the presence of black grapes as well as, as white grape. Right. But then also use something black to see the bubbles, because when they're very, very small, uh, they appear like tiny white dots and almost invisible You're right. in the wine. Uh, so you, you see them see better. see different things against the darker. Exactly. All right, so let's take a sniff. Oh, sniff, absolutely. Thanks for smelling it first. I appreciate that. I think that's <laughs> very important. It is, because it's... So a, it has a very prominent nose. Mm-hmm. Now, describe to me what we're getting in the nose. I know what I'm getting, but I want to hear it from you. Uh, the thing is, it, and, and, and I feel that smelling it is a part of the pleasure, too. So the first... First, first nose is a bit more dominated with citrus, which come from the Chardonnay, but soon after, you have a bit of the rounder fruit of the Pinot, uh, a bit of the of the red currants, and a bit of the blackberry, and a bit of the spicy notes as well that are So arriving. you're getting citrus, mm-hmm. you're getting some black fruit, mm-hmm. you're getting some red fruit. Mm-hmm. And oh. a bit of, of, of spiciness coming from gently. From where? From any particular grape? Uh, it could be from the Pinot more. Okay. Yeah. All right, There's let's taste notes. So we Cheers. want good health. <laughs> we want to talk about mouthfeel, the bubbles, mm-hmm. the effervescence, the acidity, and then flavor. Absolutely. They're delicious. Okay. So what are we tasting? Uh, first, uh, there are three moments important in, in, in the mouth. The, the arrival of the wine on the palate, which we call the attack, and then, and then the central sensation when it's in the middle of the in mouth. Exactly. And the finish. 
this I is a long finishing chant. Mm-hmm. I still have. Yeah, exactly. Well, I that, mean, I got the attack and the mid pallet, but it's a few think, seconds later, it's still sitting there. That, I hope you would agree that the, 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 the attack is quite frank, a bit sharp, um, but not aggressive. And then hmm. real rich presence on the palate with a slight salivation on side and very long and persistent with a, an almost salty finish, which is a bit surprising. Not uh, overpowering salty, but a little salinity. Mm-hmm, exactly. More salinity than yeah, salt. Because right. when you think of salt, you think of no, you're on right. top of French fries or something. <laughs> no, not at which all. Which is not what we're thinking. But though it's all about looking for the uh, balance between a substance uh, and real character on the palate, but in a, in, a, in an elegant manner, in a, not in Very a heavy elegant. manner. What grapes are in this champagne? We have a touch of Meunier, 22%, uh, a lot of Pinot Noir, 45%, and uh, 33% Chardonnay. Okay, so it's a blend of all those grapes. Availability, we checked. This is a champagne that is available at most and better uh, wine and liquor stores. The retail on this is approximately how much? Approximately $50. So it's a $50 bottle of champagne that I think drinks for, you know, what tastes like considerably more money. So this is the mixed vintage, which you will now use in your vocabulary because you're going to drop non-vintage. Too melty. (laughs) Because Alice told you that it's a negative term, and I think she's right. It's the mixed vintage Bruno Payard Extra Brut Champagne. All right, thank you for bringing that, Alice. Finally, wait, did you want to say something? All right, so we're going to wrap up the show. Finally... To find out about great wine events and tastings in your area, go to localwineevents.com and plug into your city. There's a diversity of interesting wine events every week. If you have a wine happening or event or something interesting, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. We will also post Alice's wine list answers, and we will post the weekly wine sip, the champagne we tasted, and we'll give you some of the descriptors. Thank you, Alice, for being our guest. Thank you so much, Sam. You really, you really upped our knowledge of champagne, and we appreciate that. Thank you, Alice Payard, co-director of Champagne Bruno Payard. Thank you to our engineer, Pierre, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. Go to heritageradionetwork.org for more info. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.